Last week, we started our series in the book of Revelations called The View from Heaven. And I told you last week that this is one of the most difficult books, the one of the most controversial books in the Bible, and we're going to do our best to navigate through some of um, the, the key themes of this book. Last week, we actually started in Revelations 4. We actually started this series last year, and we did 1, 2, 3 last year. But last week, we started in Revelation 4, and we saw that the author John um, was invited to see the world from heaven's perspective. And, and, and he started to draw out this picture in Revelations 4 of this amazing picture where God was center and exalted on the throne. And that's the picture of heaven. Now, what's really interesting, I guess, is we have to ask ourselves, have you, ever, have you even thought about heaven? You know, it's not really something that you think about a lot. You know, like we, we preach a lot through themes of the Bible. We, we talk a lot about love and we talk about characteristics of God and patience and whatnot, but, but we don't really talk too much about heaven or ideas of the afterlife. And I think one of the reasons why is because it's really hard, right? And, 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 and I, would be, I would be lying to say that the reason why I haven't preached more on this is because it's really hard for me too. And so what we're trying to do is, I'm not telling you my opinion of what heaven looks like. I'm trying to, uh, we're just going to navigate through what scripture says of what heaven looks like and what heaven uh, and slash the end of the world looks like, right? And, and it gets a bit funny and there are a lot of images and things like that that won't make sense. And remember last week, one of the rules that I said to you is that I don't have all the answers, right? And that's okay, just because we don't know everything doesn't mean that it's not truth. Just because you don't know how it, it works doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It still does work. But knowledge is not the most important priority here. It's for us to gauge what God's plan is. And so if Revelations 4 last week was to set the scene, Revelations 5 is where the drama begins. And we can split up this chapter into three parts, the problem, the solution, and the response. Okay, so we're going to run through Revelations chapter 5 over three different um, parts. Okay, let's begin at the, number one, the problem. Revelations 5 verse 1 to 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven and on earth and under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So John has now gone from describing the big scene to now starting to describe some action. And we see the focus goes from God who is center and exalted. Now it moves to what's in his hand, what's in his right hand, and it's a scroll. Now the scroll is described as having writing on both sides and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, there's a lot of research on what the actual scroll is and what it said. Some people say that it's actually a copy of the Old and New Testament that they had. 
Some people say that it was actually um, the whole book of Revelation written. But after reading a whole bunch of different commentaries, the best description that I found um, of what was on the scroll was that it was God's will, his final settlement of affairs of the universe. I think the best interpretation of what that scroll is, it's like God's plans for the rest of the world written in that scroll. Now, what an important piece of information that is. Like a roadmap leading the way to the end or, or financially stating in a will uh, what will happen to a person's belongings after they die. The scroll represents the decrees of God concerning what is to come. And as much as the contents are important, and we'll see what the contents are after the scroll is opened, the focus of chapter 5 is this question, who is worthy enough to open the scroll? Who is worthy enough? Who has um, the authorization to open the scroll. Now, that's really important, right? As much as what's on the scroll is important, uh, you've got you to have someone to be able to um, have that key and open it. And what John sees is that there is no one in heaven, no one on earth that is worthy enough to open the scroll. And that leads to John weeping. So that's number one, the problem. So we move to number two, the solution. Revelation 5, verse 5 to 7. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So if the problem was that there is no one worthy enough to take the scroll from God and open it, Verses 5 to 7 give us a solution. Finally, they found someone that was worthy enough. And he's described as the lion. A lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. The image of a lion is one of strength and power. But as we said, a lot of the imagery used in the book of Revelation comes from the Old Testament. And, and, and the, uh, the, where the Messiah was described as the lion. Genesis, right? Genesis, the first book in the Bible, right? Uh, chapter 49, uh, 9 to 10. You are, you are a lion's cub, Judah. Talking about the tribe of Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So this is talking about the tribe of Judah. And all the way in Genesis 49, right, um, God is saying that out of this tribe, it's going to be out of this tribe, the tribe of Judah, will come the Messiah, will come the one to save. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, the roots of Jesse, 
will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Now, who's Jesse? Jesse's the father of King David. So in Revelations, when the, when, when the one that is worthy was described as the root of David, the root of David is the same root of Jesse. Jesse, son David. And what, what, what Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah was saying was, in the same way, the prophet, the, the Messiah, the one that will come to save, not only will come from the tribe of Judah, but will come through the family line of Jesse and King David. Who is this? Who is this one that is worthy to open the scroll? Who is this one that is from the tribe of Judah, the, the family line of Jesse and, and, and David? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that they're describing in Revelation 5. John 1.29 the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I really wrestled with this question. What made Jesus worthy? What made him worthy apart from every other person in the universe? What made Jesus worthy above everyone else to open the scroll? And it comes back to this, the, the, the image of the lion and the lamb. See, they describe this one that is worthy as the lion of Judah. Now, I'm not a big animal, animal person, but the image of a lion is one of power, is one of strength, one of leadership. And we see that. We see this symbol of majesty, authority. They say lions, they, they conquer. And yet, we also see that Jesus is described as the lamb, the lamb that was slain. And what's interesting is the, the whole narrative goes, the elder says, hey, look, we found someone that's going to open the scroll, that, that is worthy to open the scroll, is the Lion of Judah. And so John's like, wow, the Lion, the strength, the courage, the bravery. And he turns around expecting to see this almighty creature, and he sees this lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb that looked like it had been slain. You know, little blood stains on his little, you know, cloud puffy, you know, skin, Right? But what we need to understand is both the image of the lion and the image of the lamb are the two themes that runs through the whole scripture describing who Jesus is, Old Testament and New Testament alike. As I said, lions are a symbol of majesty, power, rule and authority. Lions conquer, whereas lambs submit. Lions roar, lambs die. And this is who Jesus is. He is the almighty conqueror. The almighty and all-powerful, all authority he had. And yet, the description of the lamb is the description of when he died on the cross, submitting himself to the will of God the Father. 
And he died an innocent death on the cross. And that's the image of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. Jesus was the only one worthy to take the scroll and open it, not just because of his power and might, but because of his act of sacrifice as he died for the people. Now, in the description of the lamb, a little bit of symbolism, the number seven is going to be, you'll see this number seven, right? And this came a lot of comfort to me personally. The number seven, the biblical number of seven, describes the number of completion, right? Um, completion. So, so it's like the full version. So the lamb is described in verse uh, five to seven as having seven eyes, right? Which is representing complete knowledge or complete insight. Not only seven eyes, but has seven horns. Describing complete power. And then seven spirits representing complete presence. So as much as you see this innocent lamb that has been slain, one that looks so defeated, it's also an idea that he, this lamb is the almighty, all-conquering, all-knowing, and all-present being. This was Jesus. He was the one worthy to take the scroll. In verse 5, the reason the Lion of Judah could open the scroll is because he was the great conqueror. And in verse 9, we see that the reason he can open the scroll is because he was the one that was slain and it was by his blood that people were saved by God. In other words, his right to open the scroll is owing to the fact that he ransomed people for God by his death. And by this ransoming was the victory, the victory against death. So we had the problem, who, can, who is worthy? And then we have the solution, the lion and the lamb that is Jesus. And in the final part of this passage, we see the response of everyone else there. Verse 8, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on this earth. Now remember what I said, Revelation, it's not a, it's not a snapshot picture that we saw in chapter 4, but 5 is now a movie. So Jesus is found, the lion and the lamb. He's the one that is worthy to, to take the scroll, and we see Everyone in heaven bowed down and worshipped Jesus. The four living creatures that we saw last week, the 24 elders, they all bowed down before this lamb. And they worship him. They, they, they were worshipping God and then now their attention is now to the lamb. And their worship song, just like the one we sang, is recorded in verse 9 and 10. 
And this song that they sing, this song of praise, is a song that recognizes the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, the word redemption, to redeem something, means to save, the act of saving. And so Jesus, as he redeemed mankind, this is the worship that they're giving. They're acknowledging Jesus. So there's, there's different things that you see in this song. Right, the phrase, for you were slain, honors the act of redemption, that Jesus was slain. And with your blood, that phrase, it honors the price of redemption, the price that was paid, the, the blood that was shed by Jesus. Persons from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation honors the scope of redemption. Who can be redeemed? Every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And the phrase, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, honors the length of redemption. And finally, the phrase, and they will reign on the earth, honors the result of redemption. The fact that man was saved, it's not just we were saved to just exist, but we were saved to reign and rule in victory with Christ. This is the song that they respond with when Jesus the Lamb and the lion takes the scroll to open it up to fulfill God's plans on earth. Verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. What a sight. Right? You have to use your imagination. And that's what John's trying to pull out in, in, in Revelation. You have to use your imagination. You see God on the throne, center and exalted. You see the lamb, the lion and the lamb, the, 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 the slain lamb there. He's the only one that's worthy to take the scroll. The four living creatures, the elders are worshiping the lamb. And now we have literally ten thousands of thousands of angels that are circling this whole activity. And they're all crying out. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. But it's not just the angels in verse 13. It says that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, they all worship him. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the chapter ends with the four living creatures, the elders, bowing down to worship God and his son, Jesus. And that's the end of chapter 5. Now, we need to remember that this is a letter that was written to Christians in that area, in the seven churches that were mentioned in chapters 1 to 3. And these Christians, not like us, they're being oppressed severely by the Roman government. And they're asking themselves, is this worth it? When will this end? Will I die because of my faith? And they're asking this question, what will happen to us? Will there be someone to come and save us from this oppression? 
And they read Revelation 5 and to hear that there was one that was worthy to carry out the plans of God, the Lion of Judah, the sacrificial lamb. To hear that would have brought about much hope, joy, and worship in their current situation. Now, once again, as we hear this and we we, we paint ourselves this picture of what revelations would look like. We have to ask ourselves, well, where do we fit in this picture? We're not really too oppressed. We're not oppressed by the Roman government. You know, we're, we're relatively free. Relatively. You know, what, what's this passage got to do with us? And the thing that we need to understand is that the three things, right? The problem the solution and the response is exactly the same for us. See, friends, we had a problem too, and it's the problem of sin. Sin is what separated us from God. Our desire to live for ourselves and worship ourselves led to spiritual separation from God. But that's not the problem. That's our act of rebellion. The problem is if we choose to separate ourselves from God, then God will allow that, not just in this lifetime, but for all of eternity. Separate from God for all of eternity, that's the definition of hell. Hell is defined as the absence of God. Where God is not, that is what is defined as hell. And as much as we're used to, you know, the two horns and the pitchfork and the fires and the donuts, depending on which TV show you watch, right? Like seriously, my, my, the greatest influence of the picture of hell that I have is from The Simpsons. When Homer went and, and they're feeding him the donuts and they think that that's punishment and Homer is just like, whoo, you know, this, if this is hell, that's great, right? But it's not like that. Separate from your creator. If I was to give an example of what I think would be the worst thing on earth, right, as a, as a basic idea of, and, and a lot of guys would know this, but my greatest fear, got taken care of this week, by the way. No, that's not my greatest fear. <laughs> my greatest fear is that, oh, maybe that's what, I'll explain this. I'm working this out as we go. My greatest fear is that when we travel as a family or when we go somewhere, I lose one of my kids or, I, or one of my kids gets kidnapped. And, you know, I watch just too many of those weird shows, right? And legit, like when I travel, it's not as fun as, you know, if, if I was to travel without my kids because the whole time I'm worried that some guy in a white van is going to turn up, pick up one of my kids, and then drive off. And I'm, I'm in a foreign country, and I can't speak the language, and I can't do anything. And that's legit, like, my greatest fear. Maybe, and then I, I just realized then, I was like, maybe that's why I have so many kids. <laughs> just in case I lose one. <laughs> Don't tell that to my kids. We'll take that off the recording. I tell you what hell would be for me. Separation, permanent separation from my children, that would be a description of hell for me. 
And I reckon as the kids, if they got older, if you were to articulate in their language, what is the worst thing that can happen to you? As a child, the worst thing that could happen would be I lose my mum and dad, right? That's, that's the closest that I would explain what hell is. Now, that's what hell is, but in a spiritual sense, is that we're separated from our creator God. Now, of course, on this, this planet, for many of us, for 60, 70, 80, 90, I hope you get to 100 years, you might think, that's great. I have freedom. I can do whatever I want. But the question is, well, what, what happens when you die? Because no one lives forever, right? No one lives forever. So what happens then? And so then you have to start asking these questions about, well, what does happen after we die? And what the Bible tells us is that there is life after death. But depending on your choice of whether you choose to be with God or whether you choose to be separated from God, that whatever choice you make in this lifetime will go forward into eternity. And in this lifetime, you've got a choice. But after death, there is no choice. Once you're there, you're there for eternity. Now, why am I talking about this? Because that's the problem we have. That's the problem of sin, of being our own gods, saying that we don't need God. I'm going to be God. I'm going to be in control. I'm going to live my life to whatever I want. And it's quite funny because you and I can't even control the weather tomorrow. We take so much credit for our lives, thinking that, that we're in control and that, that we know what we're doing, and yet it's so far beyond our reality. We're not in control. You can't control if you wake up tomorrow or not. You think you can. You know, we look at our schedules. We control our schedules, control our finances. Friend, you can't control what color hair comes out of your head. That's the reality of how much control we have. So that's the problem that we have. We're born sinful because of humanity. We're sinful in action. We're sinful in deed. We're sinful in thought. And it's sin that separates us from God. And no one can do anything about it. But luckily, the solution is the same solution that we see in Revelation 5. There is one. There is one that is worthy, the lion and the lamb. When God sent his one and only son, Jesus, who was God, but came to earth as a man, lived and died as a man, died on the cross like an innocent lamb sent to slaughter for our sins and the sins of the world, his death and his sacrifice paid the price. He redeemed us. So when God sees us and we're covered by the blood of the Lamb, it's not our sinfulness that God sees, but He sees the sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb all over us. And just like in Exodus, the, the Passover, the, the angel of God passes over when He sees the blood of the innocent Lamb. Just like that, the angel of God passes over our sins. Because he sees us and we're redeemed. 
He became the sacrifice that would be worthy enough to redeem us and save us. This is the thing, right? No one on earth can die for you and make you sinless. Why? Because there's no one on earth that is sinless. That's just blind leading blind. No one on earth. You can't do it. I can't do it. I can't die. I can't go and go, God, I will die so that my children will be saved. My blood will cover them and they'll be right with you. And God will say, your blood is sinful. Your blood is dirty and it's got high cholesterol. (laughs) It is not pure. It's not good enough. And there is no one on earth, there's no one on earth that is sinless. But that's why, that's why Jesus, the Son of God, had to come. The sinless sacrifice had to come and die. He was the only one that was worthy. No one else, no one else is good enough. No one else can redeem us from our sins. So, the problem of sin, the solution of Jesus. And the third one is now the response. And I believe that this is the question that God is wanting each and every one of us to ask ourselves tonight. What is your response? How will you respond to the saving work of Jesus in your life? Now, in heaven, when we saw Revelation 5, the, the, the one that was worthy to read the scroll, and there was just a response of honor and worship and, and people bowing down and angels singing. And it was just this amazing celebration because that's how good it was. And I wonder, if, someone, if, if you were dying, if you were dying, if you were physically dying, and someone offered to give up their life so that you could live, what would your response be? You know, for some of us, right, we're simple creatures. Hey, I'll shout you dinner. Hallelujah. You know, we're so grateful when someone will even just shout us a meal. We're so grateful someone will even hang out with us. Imagine if someone died. Imagine if someone gave their heart to you. So you could live. What would your response be? It would be one, and I've never been in this situation, so I'm, I'm guessing. But I would think that it would be a response of, firstly, deep gratitude. Just gratefulness that I get to live, even though that person dies. There would be a, a, a response of thanksgiving. Thank you to that person. And of deep honor towards that person. You know, for some of us, I guess some of us, we experience this even with our parents sometimes. When you get to an age where you're a bit more mature, you get to recognize the sacrifices that your parents have made for you. What do you do? You respond in gratitude and thanksgiving and you respond by trying to honor them the best that you can. Now, here's the question. Deep gratitude, thanksgiving and honor towards the one that saved us. 
would that be the way that you would describe your attitude towards God? And I'm not just talking about worship in our service. I'm talking about worship. You know, we, we can't even sing properly, right? I'm not talking about just singing. I'm, I'm talking about the way you conduct your life. In the way you live your life, does it describe gratitude and thanksgiving towards our God who saved us? In the way you think and act and feel, is that a proper way to show honor and, and gratitude and worship towards Jesus who died on the cross? Jesus is the lion, the son of God, the almighty who reigns and, and rules with ultimate power presence and knowledge and it's the same Jesus that is the sacrificial lamb who was slaughtered on the cross to pay for your sins and my question is what's your response to that what's your response to that because heaven showed us what their response was heaven showed us what their response was towards Jesus and I wonder how far we are in our own lives in our own responses to one that saved us. Friends, if we're truly grateful and understand the depth of our problem, the heights of the solution, then everything we do, everything we do would be an act of gratitude and thanksgiving and worship towards Jesus. From the moment you wake up to the moment you sleep, everything should be an act of worship. But the reality is, it's not. Why? Why is it that we're not grateful? Why is it that we're not thanksgiving? Why is it that we conduct our lives not honoring and worshipping Jesus, who, who we say who saved us? Why? We, we forget Jesus. We ignore Jesus. We undermine Jesus. We under, uh, underestimate his worth. And instead, we worship. Our worship goes towards things, other things in our lives that we have elevated and given worth. The worst idol being ourselves. We don't submit to the power of the lion and we're not grateful for the sacrifice of the lamb because we don't understand depth of who Jesus is. It's all about value. It's all about worth. The Bible tells us, right? There's this story. A man finds treasure in a field. Right? I love this story. He's just walking. right? This is my version of the story, by the way. He's just walking and he sees something sparkly in a piece of dirt. He goes over, he looks and goes, oh, maybe I found two bucks. And he finds a pot of gold, ancient gold, the most ancient of ancient golds there is, the most expensive treasure ever, you know. If this was a reality TV show, it would be on one of those gold, gold mine shows. It's really fun, those gold mine shows. I don't, just can't remember the name of them. So what does he do? He sells, he goes home, he sells everything that he has. And he takes that money and goes to the owner of the field and he says, let me buy this field off you. Do you think that he would have cared how much he was offering? 
He's not going to go and go, hey, I know you said the field's a million dollars. How about just 900,000? You know? He's not going to haggle. Why? Because he knows in his head what is in that field is so much more valuable than what he's going to pay for it. And that makes sense to every single one of us. Right? That makes sense to us. Right? Like, if you're going to have to pay $50. Right? Imagine, right? Here, I have a $50 note. Let me buy that $100 note off you. And you're selling it for $50. Here you go. Here's, here's $50. And your mind, you're like, what an idiot. Right? Why are they selling the $100 note only for $50? And you're like, ka-ching, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Right? You've got no problem borrowing 50 bucks of someone else because even if you borrow 50 bucks, go buy the $100 note. You get the 100, you get 50 back, and you have 50 in your pocket. Ka-ching! Right? That's one big fried chicken. Right? 50 bucks. See, the problem why we don't, why we struggle to honor and worship Jesus in our lives. Right? Why we're not thinking about Jesus when we wake up and, and, and why we're not thinking about Jesus when we go to sleep or when we make decisions in our life, why Jesus is not a part of that process or, or why we choose to do things that maybe Jesus wouldn't like us to do is because the way we value Jesus is incorrect. We see Jesus as a good thing we might see Jesus as an obligation. We might see him as a good prophet. But deep down inside of our hearts, he's not the one that saved our soul for eternity. Because if you really understood that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross to pay for the penalty of your sin, so that you didn't have to go to hell, but you could have eternal life with God in heaven for eternity, not just another lifetime, but eternity. If you had the correct view of Jesus, your response would be the same as those in heaven. You would bow down and worship him. That's what we see in Revelation 5. And so tonight, it's not... Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? Slap, slap, you know, beat yourselves up. What's wrong with you? We're going to take you back and, you know, we can't do that. Safe ministries. It's not that. I'm not trying to beat you up by saying, why are you living your life like this? What I'm challenging you is, do you see Jesus for who he is and what he's done for you? Because only when you have the correct view and perspective of Jesus will you choose to lay down, you will sell everything you have, you will lay down your life and you will live for him only when he is of that much value to you. It's the only way. That's what I want to challenge you. That's what Revelations 5 is drawing us a picture of. So friends, don't, don't be like, oh, I should live my life better. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, do you know the value of Jesus? We had baptism class today. 
And so we've got three sisters that are going to get baptized. And the biggest thing about baptism is their story of conversion or when they became a Christian. And it's, I'll tell you, it's the best class in the world. Man, there was four of us in the room, and after three stories, all four of us are in tears. Why? Because we saw the value of Jesus and what he had done for each of these guys in their life. He has changed their life, and they were so filled with gratitude and emotion because they knew who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for them. And all four of us just overcome because they had the correct view of who Jesus is. And I wonder tonight if you do. I wonder if you see him as the Lion of Judah, the Almighty, the All-Powerful, Son of God, the All-Conquering. Because if you do, then why are you worried about what's going on in your life? But then do you also see him as the sacrificial lamb that took the sins when he died on the cross for you? Because when you do, you feel so, so much gratitude. Thank you for taking my place. Friends, Jesus, he's the lion of Judah. He's the root of Jesse and David. He is the sacrificial lamb that died for your sins and mine. And because of who he is and what he has done, our response is to honor and worship him in everything that we do. And I pray that tonight you would question and be challenged to see Jesus for who he is. Let's pray.